I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as I go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. Stephanie Morimoto, owner and CEO of Asutra, joins us on the Executives Exchange to share her unconventional journey from burnout to successful entrepreneur. She reflects on the positive outcomes of focusing on self-care and developing relationships. Hear how she created a company that prioritizes wellness and inclusivity. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Hi, Margaret. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've gotten to know you a bit over the last couple of years and um, I'm just really excited to showcase your thought leadership, your entrepreneur journey, and just you as a human being. I think you're just impressive in so many ways and are doing so many things for so many people, and we're going to dig into all of it. So tell us a little about where you grew up. I grew up in Joliet, Illinois, about an hour southwest of Chicago. Were you born there? Were you always from there? I was born in Joliet. Uh, My dad was also born in Joliet and grew up there. And my grandparents on my dad's side came to Joliet from different places. Uh, They are of Japanese descent. And unfortunately, they and their families were incarcerated by the U.S. government during World War II, along with over 100,000 other Mm -hmm. individuals of Japanese descent. So they were born and grew up as kids on the West Coast in Washington and California. But after being released from those camps, came to the Midwest, like so many other Japanese Americans, ended up in Chicago, uh, ended up at Northwestern University for college. My grandfather worked his way through college and medical school And then my grandpa got an opportunity to work with an eye doctor ophthalmologist, which was his specialty, in Joliet, Illinois, when it was just cornfields. Yeah. Went down there, worked with the doctor, and when that doctor retired, he ended up taking over that practice. That is fascinating. And it's amazing, just all the twists and turns that people yes. take. Because that's why I asked you, because I was really like, why Joliet? How did you end up in Joliet? Of all the places, <laughs> right. nothing against Joliet, just not. No, but yeah. Where you normally hear people are from. So thinking about your childhood and all of your formative years, was there anything in there that inspired you to entrepreneurship or did that come later? That's a great question. I think my grandparents did really inspire me in entrepreneurship. So my grandfather on my dad's side, as I mentioned, worked his way through medical school, became a doctor, and really was an entrepreneur as a doctor because he built his own medical practice in a town where, you know, that wasn't super common. He also created good jobs for people in his office in a town where great jobs were also not the norm. Mm -hmm. And it was great to see his example because he did something he really loved caring for other people through medicine and healthcare. I mean, he used to, in addition to seeing his patients at the office and the hospital, he would actually go and donate eye care to inmates at the state prison in Joliet. Oh, wow. And of course, you know, created good jobs in his office as well. So it was neat to see him do something he was really passionate about, but also do good for and give back to the community. And then my grandmother on my mom's side, she also has a lot of twists and turns in her family. So on my mom's side, uh, they are ethnically Chinese, but from Indonesia, and unfortunately had to flee Indonesia during civil unrest in the 60s, 
landed in Los Angeles, California. And my grandmother ended up becoming the breadwinner for the family when they came to the U.S. She had one major skill, which was sewing. So she started as a seamstress and ended up growing her own business, making patterns for fashion brands. So it was also cool to see her build something from nothing to support her family. And even though she worked extremely hard, she also always found time for things that brought her joy, you know, making and sharing meals with family, new adventures, trying new things, going to new places with all of us. And she always had time for us grandkids. So it was neat to see her example of entrepreneurship where she built something from nothing, but still had a lot of joy and family in her life. Yeah. You could see all the threads of the tapestry starting to come together, right? Health and wellness, uh, female entrepreneurship, design, joy. So it kind of was all there percolating yes. in the back, yes. but it was not a linear path to where you came. What was the plan? You grad- well, where'd you go to high school, by the way? I went to Joliet West Public High School, okay, uh, which was not the best high school in Illinois by any stretch. I would say we were unfortunately probably mediocre at best. They're was one guidance counselor for all of us. We had about 500 students per class. And there weren't super high expectations for us. But I was really lucky in that I had very supportive parents and grandparents. And I was also part of a peer friend group where all of us were really motivated to do well in school, go to college, and make something of our lives. And actually, every single one of us ended up doing something really interesting. I mean, there's MDs, there's PhDs, there's business owners, there's journalists. And I think it really was that peer pressure in a positive way, as well as that support across the group. Yeah. I mean, there's so much research on this. The within school variation, it's always greater than the between school. And we know this. This is true for most Mm -hmm. things statistically. But that it's really the family and peer group that kind of trump the quality of the high school. So you can go to, you know, a fantastic high school, but if you don't have those things, you know, your outcomes may be different. And then same thing, you may go to a high school that's adequate or maybe at the bottom of the barrel. But if you have the peer group and the family group, you can do a lot with that. We know how important that is. Absolutely. That's so interesting. So what was the plan when you were graduating high school? Did you have a plan? (laughs) I mean, I had a plan, but you know, we all have plans in high school or college and we don't end up doing those plans. I admired my grandfather so much. And then my dad and mom ended up in healthcare too. So my father became an oral surgeon. My mom is a dentist. They actually met in dental school. Oh, wow. And that was really all I knew, right? Because yeah. in Joliet, either you were working um, at Caterpillar, blue collar oh. manufacturing, mm-hmm. great union job. Uh, you were working at the state prison, or there were a lot of you know hourly sort of minimum wage jobs in service or retail. And in my family, everyone was in healthcare in some shape or form. And so I thought I'll probably just end up becoming a doctor. But I did not like organic chemistry. <laughs> so when I got to college and took my first year of chemistry, I was like, mm, I don't want to do this for a number of years more mm-hmm. that I've already done it. So that plan went by the wayside. I wasn't going to become a doctor or be in healthcare in some way. And in college, I really fell in love with sociology as a study. You know, honestly, college was the first time I felt really academically and intellectually challenged. I was really lucky to go to a college where the professors really taught. So we weren't taught by graduate students. The professors were very engaged 
both in class and in office hours. And it was really eye-opening and life-changing for me. And then I would also say I was really lucky in that where I went to school, you know, even though this was 25 years ago <laughs> when, I, when I graduated from college, I would say my college was very good at teaching us about social structures and injustices as you know, as part of the curriculum, as part of our socialization in college, they really helped us understand how there had been historical and structural uh, racism, sexism, discrimination of various kinds, and how that shows up today. And even how that shows up in everything from, you know, banking policies to housing policies to education. I think the combination of being able to study sociology as a discipline with the real life education, if you will, that my college gave us in what shows up in our society was powerful because it instilled in me an even stronger desire. I always had this from my grandparents and my parents watching them give back to the community in Joliet. But I think that experience in college instilled an even stronger desire in me to do what I do my small part to bring justice uh, and wellness to the world. I know we've known each other a little bit, but I don't know that we've gotten to know each other that much personally. So did you know my PhD is in sociology? I think you told me that when we went on a walk. <laughs> but it was the same thing. Together. Like I, you know, very adequate high school at best. It was a small Catholic high school. The diocese shut it down. You know, they shut down a, a bunch of high schools. But I got to college and like everything opened up in terms of my thinking of the world and how these things matter. Like I grew up in a place uh, different than you, but where everyone look the same, talk the same, believe the same mm. things. Everyone went to the same, you know, church, everyone went to the same school. And it was a really like closed-minded view of the world and just how impactful it is to get to a place where you do have really powerful professors who can open your mind and think critically. And I know you're on the board of Hope Chicago. And so you're super passionate about this. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, I mean, I just got to see firsthand through my grandparents and my parents and my own experience how education can truly change your life. It's obviously the biggest driver of socioeconomic mobility in our country, but there's also the social capital you gain, right? I had no idea what other jobs existed (laughs) outside (laughs) of healthcare going to school. And then in college, I met so many people whose parents did different things, who they themselves were interested in different things that I'd never even heard of. And it really opened my eyes to what was possible, you know, professionally, creatively. And that is exactly why I'm on the board of Hope Chicago, because we're providing the opportunity to go to college debt-free for kids who often thought college was completely out of their reach. And for me personally, what's even more compelling about Hope Chicago's model is that not only are we sending every student from high school to college if they get in debt-free, we're also giving every parent from those families the opportunity to go back to school it's so if incredible. they want. Yeah. And not even just the tuition, doing some of the wraparound support, because that's what yes. um, you know Janice has seen and has clearly articulated. Like You can pay tuition, but they still can't go. Like, and getting people to understand why free tuition yeah. isn't even enough. Like, what do you mean? That's we're paying their tuition. It's like, they still can't <laughs> afford to go. Like, you know, and really getting people to understand all of the scaffolding that needs to get put into place before someone can 
Well, there's social supports, right? I mean, we talked about how, for me, having that peer group and that support group in high school was so critical to then even being able to dream of going to the college that I did and, and then being able to do it. And that's what we see with Hope Chicago, too, is providing those success coaches, helping them figure out where to find those peer groups on campus because they don't know anyone else who's been to college. All of it is a whole new and foreign experience. So how do you make sure that you stick with the right people who can help you get through that experience successfully? Yeah. So you graduate college. Your path to being the founder and CEO of Asutra is not linear. So tell us how you got here. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. Such a varied winding path. But you know, it's so funny. I think sometimes I know you have done the same thing. You do such a diverse set of things and you look back and you realize there were all these threads that came together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, graduated from college, ended up going to Japan, Hiroshima, where my grandfather's family was from to teach English for a year. And um, that year was a year that I deferred my offer to McKinsey. They were very generous and let me go to Japan, teach, and then come back and take my offer at McKinsey. So I worked in the McKinsey Chicago office and learned the basics of business, right? Something I wasn't exposed to before either. I mean, they literally invested in sending me to a mini MBA program at Dartmouth where I learned everything from marketing to accounting. And then I got to put that into practice, serving big Fortune 100 companies, and also some nonprofits. So I got to really see the gamut of organizations and the different challenges they faced. It turns out advising large companies was not really my bag. So I took what I learned from McKinsey and kind of went to the opposite end of the business size spectrum. I worked for an organization that helped women of color start small businesses and grow them. So we did everything from help women write business plans and marketing strategies to finding commercial kitchens for their catering business or manufacturing partners for their bath and body care businesses. Uh, And even worked with some nonprofits who wanted to start businesses as a way to provide employment for people in the city who maybe had a record and couldn't otherwise get a job. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was actually one, the North Lawndale Employment Network, who started a... Honey company. Yeah, they started with beehives on the roofs and realized pretty quickly they needed to create value-added products out of the honey. So they started creating bath and body products with the honey. And uh, the brand is still around and sold in Chicago, which is really cool to see because this was 20 years yeah. ago. Oh, that's fantastic. That we worked with them. Yeah. So that's where I would say I really got the entrepreneurial bug. I realized Mm -hmm. how much you could do with entrepreneurship. But of course, I had this deep-seated passion for more equitable access to education too. At the time, my husband and I moved from Chicago to New York City, and I had to get a different job. We we didn't have (laughs) remote work as much back then. (laughs) So I was like, all right, I'm moving. I got to work in a different community. So I ended up deciding to pursue my passions in education. I worked at Teach for America for a number of years, responsible for about 80% of their fundraising and revenue, and then also worked as the chief external relations officer for a similar education organization called New Leaders, which trains principals and superintendents. So I ended up raising about half a billion dollars across those two nonprofits and really learned how to grow organizations. Yeah. So at what point, what happened? where you decided to put that path behind you and get into entrepreneurship in the health and wellness space? For me, like I said, I really got 
the entrepreneurship bug helping women in Chicago start small businesses, seeing them bring their dreams into reality was really rewarding. And I thought, oh, that seems really fun. Plus, I had the examples from my grandparents, seeing them do the same thing. <laughs> and to be totally honest, I burned out in education. Uh, yeah. It's a tough field, as you can probably imagine. Change can be incremental as best. It's highly political. You know, fundraising every year can really take its toll. And I was working in organizations where there was this culture of the mission is everything. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't working every waking moment on that mission, you're not doing enough for the kids that we serve. And I hit a wall. You know, I was yeah. flying across the country constantly. I was working 18 hours a day. I did not have healthy routines. I was not sleeping well. I was not eating well. And, you know, it's funny, I actually kind of forgot about this until I spoke on a panel a couple months ago, but I used to have these terrible headaches, stomach aches, muscle cramps. And I would go to all these doctors trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And the tests always came back clean. You're fine. In retrospect, I realized it was burnout manifesting physically. I mean, it was literally the stress and the lack of sleep showing up in these painful physical ways. The body's like, what if we make her stomach hurt? Maybe she'll slow down. Oh, that's not working. Maybe (laughs) we'll cramp her legs so she physically can't go to work. No, that's not working. Okay, maybe the body is like screaming all these things. Like, what can we do to get her to stop? Do something different, please. Um, so finally, I just, I, I, I finally listened to my body to your point. I was like, okay, I can't do this anymore. I, I literally can't do this anymore. Yeah. I got to do something different. And so I, I left, I got off that track and I spent a ton of time really figuring out how do I take care of myself? Well, I started to yeah. sleep, then, you know, incorporated movement, um, yoga, other practices like that, eating better. And also just bringing more joy back into my life. I mean, we talked about my grandma. She worked so hard building her own business, but she still found those moments for joy with the people she loved. And that too, I mean, research shows, right? Social connections are one of the best things we can do for our health and well-being. Yep. So all of that is really what led me to a sutra. I know that you were saying that the education field itself, but I think this is true across the board. We still have this elevation of hustle culture. And that that's how you define mm-hmm. what you're worth by like how hard you can work. It's almost this badge of honor. I remember seeing this about the explosion in these um, huge luxury spas. It's almost like you have to say, I work so hard, I have to take a week to go to the spa because that's the only way I can undo how, but that's like this badge of honor that we carry. Yeah. I would love to hear your perspective on it. Are you seeing it change post COVID? Mm. Just help. It. And I think women are affected by it in particular. Just this hustle, hustle culture, and how I have to constantly show how productive we are. So I'm wondering if through this journey, if you've gained any insights that could be helpful for those listening. Yeah, I think a couple things. One, I agree. I think women have often been expected to be Wonder Women, Super Women. Right? We've got to work professionally, be the best moms, be the best community members, like we have to be the best at every single thing. And there just literally isn't enough time in the day. And I think there was also a big push in the culture for a while around this idea of, you know, girl boss and being such a boss, which was a different flavor of that superwoman concept. And I do think with Gen Z, younger people saying, hey, I don't want to, this isn't how I want to live my life. I want more Mm -hmm. integration. 
across all the things that matter to me. I want to live in concert with my values and I want to buy from companies whose values I support, right? They just have a whole different view on the world and how they want to live in it and what's important. And I think obviously COVID was a wake up call for so many people. So I think all of those factors combined, I do feel like there is a shift. I do feel like more people are saying, you know what? I want to find a different way to live and I want to mm-hmm. live well. And you're starting to see that in the content that shows up, right? There's that, I don't know what streaming service it was on, but the documentary about the blue zones showing yeah. where people live in the longest and the practices that they're employing, right? You have so many podcasts and Instagram channels and other things where people are talking about sleep. They're talking about well-being. They're talking mm-hmm. about how to reduce stress, meditation, et cetera. So I think there is really a push. I think the danger (laughs) is now suddenly self-care feels like a stressful thing to do. We have all this homework we need to do in that. And so I think we just, just have the to, timing you know, of my vitamins. That's stressful. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like they're twice a day. When do I take them? I have to eat. <laughs> we tend to get a little too extreme on things. So I think figuring out the moderation, right? What's the one yeah. thing you can do that will really make a difference in how you feel? Maybe it's literally just going to bed 15 minutes earlier than you normally do, or right. drinking a glass of water when you wake right. up, or meditating for two minutes while you make your coffee in the morning, right? I mean, there are these simple steps you can take that help you feel better. Um, But I do feel like there are many more people who are saying, I don't want to be on this treadmill. I don't want to live my life where how productive and how busy I am is what makes me valuable, but Mm -hmm. rather I want to do things for my health and well-being. I want to feel better. And it doesn't have to be some expensive spa day or week. It can be these little practices. I know. And so I want to talk about your company now because that's what you're doing that's so helpful for people because like this girl boss and then the reverse of that was these lazy girl jobs. And like, that's not the answer either. And so like people got stuck in the situation where I think it's like, I either have to work an 80 hour week or I need to be totally lazy and get an easy job. And there's so much in the middle, right? Like you can still, you know, be productive and have careers. And I think, I think, think of Ariana Huffington when I hear you uh, talk too. I mean, luckily you didn't have to go through what she did. I mean, she physically collapsed from exhaustion and cracked yeah. her cheekbone and said, okay, now something has to give. So at least you didn't have to go through that. But you know, she talks a lot about these micro moments and just all these little things that we can do in our life. So tell us about a sutra and why this was uniquely yours to do. Yeah, a sutra's mission is making self-care a possibility for everyone. And yep. we do that in a couple different ways. One is the products. You know, our primary purpose obviously is to make and sell great products that actually work to help you get a better night's sleep, relieve pain, and reboot your mood naturally. So we use magnesium topically in a lot of our products, magnesium lotions, sprays, soaks that help with pain relief, that help you wind down for a better night's sleep. We use essential oils and aromatherapy to help reboot your mood. Um, But the other thing that we do is we provide tips through our social media, those small actionable steps that you can just start doing right away and do one of them so that you can incorporate more true self-care in your everyday. And fundamentally, the reason we think it's important to make this accessible to everybody is you know, maybe it's a little idealistic, but I really believe that we can use more love in the world. Mm-hmm. And 
when we feel our best, right? When we're truly taking care of ourselves, when we're rested, when we're able to be patient, when we're able to reboot our mood, when we're not suffering constantly from chronic pain, we feel better. We can then be our best with others. And that has a ripple effect, right? You spend a lot of time with the people you work with or in your community or in your family. And when somebody's in a terrible mood and treating everyone poorly, you know, Mm -hmm. that has a ripple effect on you. You then take that home or you take that to your team meeting or whatever it is. Right. And that's why we think that self-care is so important. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Shore Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. Tell me more about magnesium, because it really has exploded. I feel like we've finally discovered the importance of the properties. Scientists have known it, but it seemed like it's finally starting to get mainstream. So tell us a little bit more about it, how you came about it, and how it actually works. Yeah, so um, magnesium is a critical mineral for all your body functions. It's involved in over 300 body processes. It helps with your brain, your heart, your blood flow, your muscle recovery, sense of calm, right? And for me, it really was a life changer. So I came upon a sutra because I was a customer first. I was using a sutra's products, including our magnesium oil spray. And I bought the business when it was a baby business only selling on Amazon. And I, like, um, I love this I've so grown much. I want to be that. part of it. Yeah, yeah. I love the brand so much. I just, I want to do more with it. I feel yeah. like there's so much potential here. And I was telling you earlier, right? I was, my body was screaming at me. You need to do something different. My stomach was hurting. My feet were cramping. I couldn't walk. My head hurt all the time. And yeah. Magnesium was a real game changer for me. I started using it every day. I use our magnesium oil spray every morning, every night. And it's not a cure-all. I mean, it's not Mm -hmm. going to cure everything you have, but it really is an important part of my routine to help me feel better. And we love it in topical form. You can take it as a powder or a pill, but not everybody wants to pop a pill. And the other Mm -hmm. thing is sometimes people get a little upset stomach when they use it orally. But when you use it topically, if you've got, you know, your neck is sore from sitting at the computer all day, you have a little carpal tunnel, maybe you wrenched your back in a workout, you can use it topically in those places that you're feeling pain and feel relief within seconds or minutes, or you can soak in it and it's really relaxing, say before bedtime or after a workout. So you can't be on your phone until 11 o'clock at night and then suddenly spray magnesium and expect to fall asleep. <laughs> it's all part of <laughs> no, no, a whole it's lifestyle change. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to completely cure everything or uh, be an instantaneous fix for all the other things that you did or didn't do that day. But we have so many customers who now use it as a part of their daily routine or who suffer yeah. from you know, restless leg syndrome, fibromyalgia, arthritis, they use our magnesium creams, which are combined with FDA-approved pain-relieving ingredients too, like a cooling menthol or a warming capsaicin. And they just call it a game changer. I mean, one woman wrote to us the other day and said, this is almost like a miracle for me. I've tried Mm -hmm. every over-the-counter pill, ointment, powder, nothing has worked. A sutra is the one thing that has actually helped me manage my pain in a different way. 
I actually have a sample from you. Right yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I um, somehow forgot that you gave this to me. And then when I was prepping for this today, I was like, oh my gosh, I have some. So I'm going to use it today. <laughs> and I'll let you know. Great. Um, so when did you buy the company? I bought it in 2018. So it's almost okay. six years. Yeah. Yeah. What have been some of the biggest implementations that you've made? The biggest thing we did was rebrand. So when I bought Asutra, you know, the founders were two brothers and their and their wives. They really were looking to sell products on Amazon that would just work on Amazon. And this was at a time where Amazon was starting to really take off. Uh, mom and pop brands could sell on Amazon and reach a much wider audience, but there weren't a lot of great brand stories, I would say. And Sutra mm-hmm. was one of those. Like the products yeah. were good. They worked for me, but the founders were literally, you know, downloading graphics from the internet and making labels out of them. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, gosh, these products are good. We have some great customer testimonials and there's so much we can do to build a real brand and a story. So the first step I took was to hire a brand strategy firm. We talked to over 400 people about what they were looking for from a self-care brand. And we crystallized their feedback into the brand Asutra is today. We changed the logo, the color palette, the packaging, the story, relaunched mm-hmm. the website. And then the second part of that was you know, to hit our mission of making self-care a possibility for everybody. Of course, everybody shops on Amazon, but we also wanted to raise awareness and reach through retail distribution and partnerships. Um, So we also decided to expand into retail. And today you can find Asutra in mass retailers like Target and Walgreens, but also more niche product retailers like iHerb, Thrive Market, Grove Collaborative, Mm -hmm. which serve natural product shoppers. Yeah. Congratulations. It's not easy to get into those retailers. You just say, oh, now you can find us in Target and Walgreens, but that's not... (laughs) You know, very difficult to do that. Yes. It's so been a journey. It's been a journey for sure. Thank yes. you. You don't just go to Target and say, here, do you want to carry my products? And they say, sure. <laughs> it's been a lot of hard work and the team has done an incredible job. Congratulations. What does a sutra mean? Sutra means thread in Sanskrit. So we like uh-huh. to think of ourselves as a thread through your self-care because we've got magnesium for pain relief. We have natural sleep aids. We have aromatherapy for your mood. So all these different moments of self-care, you can thread them together into a routine and use a sutra to do that. And that actually came out of the market research. We, When we interviewed those 400 people, they said, you know, I would love a brand that I trust to curate the right ingredients and formulations mm-hmm. that actually work. And then I can put them together the, the way I want for my own self-care. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, I didn't even know that. And we were yeah. talking about threads and weaving tapestries and it's <laughs> yeah. clearly a theme in your you life. You inside. <laughs> I knew inside. It was intuitive. You're well known for also building a fantastic culture. You're a very authentic leader. You have an inclusive culture. And yes, that is a little bit easier to do at a smaller organization that is you know, in health and wellness. But thinking back to your McKinsey days, I'm not saying McKinsey specifically, but just big, massive global company. What have you learned now that you think they could be bringing into their organizations to create a culture that is more inclusive, more authentic, more fostering self-care? Because it is different, right? Like small company, big company. Sure. They're just different. Absolutely. There are things they can do and you lived it. And I'd love to know what you would say to these big companies, the changes that they can make? 
Yeah, I even think about myself, right, as a leader and how I've evolved and going from, you know, advising companies with tens of thousands of employees at McKinsey to working at places like Teach for America, where I was managing a couple hundred people through layers all across yeah. the country and not seeing them in person every day to a suture, which is a small team. And we're all pretty much local with a couple of people working remotely. I think for us, it really starts with our core values you know, we defined a few key values that drive how we treat each other, what we want our culture to feel like. And we talk about those every single day. We hire around them. So for example, our top core value is one team, one goal. We're in this together. We've got each other's backs. You know, if somebody's out or if there's a really big initiative and we need to be all hands on deck, we cover for each other. We mm -hmm. help each other. And this isn't about who gets the credit. It's about what's right for the business and how do we do that together. So when we hire new people, we have them read the core values and we ask them to tell us about times they've exemplified those core values or how they would call upon those core values when the, the going gets tough. Because it's also always, you know, it's easy <laughs> to be one team, one goal when things are going uh -huh. well. But when things right. aren't going well, what does that look like for you? Uh, and then we celebrate each other for it. I mean, when somebody really exemplifies the core value, we shout them out. Uh, our warehouse team gets prizes once a month for the people who exemplify that core value the most that past month. So we make it a living part of the culture. And I think that's one thing I think back on and my times in larger organizations is you know, we had values that drove our culture, but they didn't always live or show up every single day. And we didn't always have even the difficult conversations when somebody wasn't exemplifying that core value or, you know, was falling short of that core value. So I would say that's the biggest driver. And then on the wellness front, I think just being honestly being mindful of it. And I think this is something that has shifted a lot in the last 20 years. You know, when I first started, I mean, you would never talk about work-life balance or integration as a, as a real thing. <laughs> it was no. just like, work your butt off, work around the clock. We've got to deliver this for the client. We've got to deliver this for you know the donor or whatever it is. It was all about and compartmentalizing, it, right? You were supposed to not totally. let your personal life get in the way. Yes. I mean, we talked about compartmentalizing all the time. That was the superpower. Like... Work Absolutely. Is over here. Yeah. Leave over here. your personal life behind. Whatever's yeah. happening over there, just leave it over there and focus and get your work done. If it takes you until one in the morning, then like, so be it, you know, yep. and then you're still going to show up bright eyed at the meeting the next morning. And I do think, I mean, I talked about this with younger folks and Gen Z and such, but I think they're putting positive pressure in some ways, right? It's like, we don't have to live like that. And if we are working like that, is there a way that we can do this better, right? Mm -hmm. And so the other thing that I think we really try to emphasize at Asutra is work smart, not hard. It's not about the number of hours. It's not about the face time. It's about are we, and this is important because we're a small business too, right? We have limited resources. Oh, yeah. So we actually have to work smart. We have to figure out the things that are going to have the highest ROI that we're going to spend our time on because we've got limited time resources and limited financial resources. And then, of course, for us, because of our mission of making self-care a possibility for everyone, I mean, it's, it's obviously important for me to not be a hypocrite. I want us to walk the walk. You know, if somebody's got to take care of their health and well-being, whether it's mental health, physical health, we have to make the time for that. And we have to have the 
the flex in the system, staffing processes, so that if somebody's out of the doctor's appointment, it's not going to ruin the whole thing. Like, it'll be fine. Yeah. Well, that's the thing too, balancing what is an emergency, what is urgent, mm-hmm. you know, what is important but not urgent, you know, the, right. the, the two by two um, and getting really clear on that and helping people prioritize. And I think it's uh, tough when you're earlier in your career. You don't know how to prioritize. You know, and a lot of times we choose what we think is important or what's easiest for us to get done. And so as a leader, as a manager, like helping your team understand, like these are the priorities, focus on these things. And, you know, if you don't get to this other stuff, it's okay. But we do need to eventually get to it and helping people understand those things. And this can sound so basic, but I think it's so important. This is something that I always used to do even in my, in bigger organizations is be really clear about the vision right? What's the North star we're going towards Mm -hmm. and be really clear about the plan. What are the priorities? What are the three priorities to get there? You can't have seven priorities because then nothing's a priority. You have to have a pretty short list of priorities. Is everyone really clear? Is everyone bought into them? And then as a leader, you got to repeat them constantly Mm -hmm. because people forget and bring it back, bring every single person's daily work back to those priorities so they can see how they're contributing to the big picture. But we can also see where maybe we're getting off track and we need to say no to certain things. So you've done such a great job trying to democratize health and wellness and make something that is accessible to everyone. You've also done a lot for female entrepreneurs. You haven't taken any venture capital, right? You're bootstrapping the whole thing on your own, which Correct. is fantastic. Um, <laughs> pros and cons. What's what's the best part about that? And what's the most challenging part about that? I think the best part is, you know, we're not answering to outside investors who maybe demand growth at all costs. We mm-hmm. are obviously trying to do things a little differently, right? We, at Asutra, we have created good jobs for people who really need the most in our warehouse, folks who've been out of the permanent workforce but want to get back in. But that means giving second and sometimes third chances to people. Yep. We really are also trying to prioritize health and wellness of our workforce. Um, you know, our customer service person used to run our warehouse, but then she was diagnosed with MS and she literally just she couldn't do the physical work that she was doing before. And we completely overhauled her job. She luckily had experience in customer service. So we were able to put her in charge of that. She can do that from home. She has to take a nap in the middle of the day and that's okay. And she still gets all of it done when, you know, timely and takes amazing care of our customers. But that's a very specific example. If we had outside investors to answer to, maybe we couldn't have done all those things, you know, for our employees. I would say the worst part. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely <laughs> cash flow can definitely be tough, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we are very, very good at managing that. We have a great finance person who, an operations person who does that very well. But I would say the other thing is, you know, being a CEO can be lonely. And I think one benefit of outside capital is also the outside expertise you get access to. We've had to build our networks in different ways so that we can still get advice, even though they're not people who are investors at the table. Yeah. Where have you found your greatest uh, network or source of people to be that mini board of advisors for you personally? There hasn't been one source. I think it's 
it's more about, and I'm sure this probably resonates with a lot of your listeners. It's about like building your kitchen table over time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're speaking at an event or on a panel, you are invited to a conference, you get connected to somebody through somebody else. And it's about like making the time for a lot of those conversations, even if they seem irrelevant <laughs> at first. Yeah. But then also being thoughtful about, okay, who do I really keep up with from yep. these people that I've met? Because not everybody you run across is going to be helpful or even enjoyable to you personally. But when you do find those gems for you, right, the people yeah. who you really connect with, who you know can be helpful thought partners or who they themselves have a great network, making sure that you really take the time and prioritize keeping mm-hmm. up with them, sending them quick updates, finding ways to stay engaged. Yeah. Do you know Coco Mears at Equilibrio? I don't. Oh my I don't. gosh, oh, you no, would I like do. her so much. Sorry, Equilibrium. Yes. Okay. So bef- right when she was starting Equilibrium, we got connected. She actually came and did a tour of our warehouse at Asutra. Like we were both kind of getting yeah. started at the same time. So yeah, no, I do know her. I do know her. Yeah. You two um, are very kindred. I could see you really um, helping each other a lot on your journeys. Yeah. So did you have any big hurdles that you were facing as a female entrepreneur or an Asian American woman entrepreneur? Did you have any experiences that were particularly challenging in that regard? As a woman, not as much, I think in part because I haven't tried to raise outside capital. I mean, unfortunately, we know that outside capital is goes primarily to men and that is a big shame. I mean, we need to invest more in women businesses for sure. Um, I think, you know, to the point about how do you build sort of an informal board of advisors or network of people that can be helpful to you. I've just been lucky to have met a lot of great people in my journey along the way. And that's where having diverse experiences is actually helpful because you meet Mm -hmm. so many different types of people. So I've always had amazing women mentors and thought partners. I think this is interesting as an Asian American entrepreneur. There are actually a good number of us in different fields, beauty, tech, but there aren't great places where we can come together. There is an organization called the Asian American Foundation that has started bringing us together more. And I've met some great people through that. In fact, I just met a fellow entrepreneur who's also Chinese Indonesian, also ex-McKinsey, We just met each other in the elevator on the way up to one of these events. And it turns out he, after, you know, starting and selling a successful tech company is now investing in wellness companies. And we just had a great brainstorm call the other day and he's connecting me to a bunch of people. He had great advice in the call. We might have some collaborations between brands he's invested in and a sutra. So that's just another example of like, you never know (laughs) where you're going to meet somebody. Um, but following up and like making that connection a real thing is important. Yeah. So where do you feel like we've made the most advances in female entrepreneurship and where do we still have the most work to do? I think that we're finally talking about the problem that women entrepreneurs don't get as much access to capital and we also don't get as much second chances. So we're at least, we've at least defined the problem. I think where we have the longest way to go. A lot of people would say capital. I would say second chances, right? I was actually talking about this with another entrepreneur who has been in the VC space where they said, you know, white male entrepreneurs, it's a badge of honor if they failed because it means they've tried to start a bunch of stuff. They've raised the money. They've tested the concept, failed. Okay. That means you've learned a lot. 
we actually believe in you more to do the next thing. Women don't get those second chances. If we failed, it's kind of mm-hmm. it. And I think we've got to apply the same bar to women as we do to men and realize, yeah, you know what? You know who I want to back? I want to back the woman who's actually done this a few times and learned from that yep. because she's going to be so much smarter and more efficient the next time around. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't even think about that, but you're absolutely right. There's no ability to fail up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we give those ch- I mean, you look at Silicon Valley and we give those chances to men all the time. White yeah. men, I should say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. You're right. It's this badge of honor. Like, wow, look at look at how much risk they've taken. Mm-hmm. So, at a, you mentioned partnerships, possibly with this new person. You've done a phenomenal job with partnerships. And like I said, getting into Target and Walgreens is not easy. There's not like an 800 number that you call <laughs> and just get on there. Same thing with the partnerships. So <laughs> that would be so um, great. <laughs> you know, just tell us a little bit about what were the, some of those keys to success for how you built some of your best partnerships. Yeah, well, I would be remiss if I didn't call out my amazing business partner, Venus Williams, uh, the global tennis champion. Yeah. (laughs) Global tennis champion, entrepreneur, you know, advocate for equal pay uh, between men and women in tennis and in general. So she's been incredible. And the story there is even more incredible, which is that she cold called us at a sutra. I mean, we were not looking for a celebrity partner, but oh, wow. it turns was out she using your Venus product? was using, yeah, Venus was wow. using our pain relief creams. So a lot of people don't know, but she was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder called Sjogren's. I did And know with Sjogren's, you have unexplained fatigue. You can have arthritis even at a young age. And she was using our pain relief creams as part of her regimen, both for training and, you know, dealing with Sjogren's. And it worked so well for her that she had her team cold call us because she'd never heard of the brand Asutra. And I at first thought it was a scam. (laughs) I was like, is this for real? (laughs) But it turned out it was for real. It was like all those Mackenzie Scott emails. The early CEOs of the nonprofits were like, I'm not even going to return this email. (laughs) Yeah. Like this is, this is just somebody trying to scam me for sure. But it turned out it wasn't. She was truly interested. And I got to sit down with her right before the US Open. This was a few years ago, which apparently she never does. We had to meet in this like secret conference conference room where nobody would see her, walk to it from her hotel room. And uh, we had a great conversation. I talked to her about how we wanted to relaunch the brand and get into retail. And she said, I would love to help you grow awareness of the brand and the business. And she's been awesome. Uh, You know, we were just, we speak of another amazing person. We were so honored to be on Oprah's favorite things for the second year in a row this past holiday season. Oprah apparently is obsessed with our silk sleep mask, which is weighted, it blocks out light. She'd never used one before she tried a sutras and now she's obsessed so like Venus did a, you know, did a great video announcement about being on the list for us on Instagram. So she's been great. And I think that was really a game changer for us. It just, it boosted our awareness to a whole different level and enabled us to do things not only like Target and Walgreens, uh, but also develop a really exciting new hometown partnership. So Asutra is based in Chicago And we were absolutely thrilled to launch a partnership with United Airlines, also based in Chicago. Oh, cool. Yeah. So United has a Sutra branded amenity kits on their business class routes between California and New York. Oh, wow. Which we're thrilled about. 
Yeah. 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 Oh, that's really cool. Only on that route, only in business class. Is it launched yet? It did launch. Yeah. Launched in August of 2023 and we've got a two-year contract with them and it's part of their efforts to create more wellness on the go or on the fly. So they're trying to create more opportunities for well-being while you're flying. I have a feeling that's just the beginning. I'm pretty sure it'll be in more routes. (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) I have a feeling. So what's on the horizon? I mean, you've had such an incredible five years the next five years as a chapter in this book of a sutra. What's what's the title of that chapter? What's that chapter about? What are you going to do the next five years? <laughs> yeah, I think we just, you know, for me, my vision and dream for a sutra is that we are the go-to products for people who want natural solutions for pain and sleep, right? Um, it's great that we're on United. It's amazing that we're in Target and Walgreens. But I think for us, the next year is going to be all about like really serving our natural shopper really mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned we're in more niche natural products retailers as well, like iHerb, Thrive Market, um, natural grocers, which is kind of like a mini Whole Foods out West. And those are the people that are seeking more natural remedies and are so core to what yep. a sutra stands for. So we really want to reach as many of them as possible and serve them really well. So we'll be uh, hopefully doing some fun little in-person events, in-store demos, things to reach those people. Yeah. Oh, that's really neat. Well, we're recording this in early December. So for anyone listening, I don't know what, if it'll get released before the holidays. Maybe not, but you know, post-holiday shopping gifts, you've got it. The Silk Eye Pillow. Anything coming in 2024 that you're excited about that you can share with us? Yeah. Um, we So we have a whole array, as you mentioned, of our silk sleep masks in a variety of colors. Uh, we have a brand new champagne color that is gorgeous. Great for Mother's Day <laughs> as okay. well as holiday gifts. We're working on some different formats of our melatonin products. So we have a topical melatonin lotion. It's a lo- body lotion, a luxurious shea butter, almond oil body mm. lotion with melatonin and magnesium. We actually just completed a third-party clinical trial of it. And the study showed, that third-party clinical study showed that our Dream the Night Away melatonin lotion, 97% of regular users improved their quality of sleep and people who used it regularly got two extra hours of sleep a night. So people went from getting six hours of sleep to eight hours of sleep using the lotion. Yeah. Crazy. Um, Ambien gives you 19 minutes. That's the entire clinical data of Ambien. 19 more minutes of sleep. And Ambien is really not good for your brain. No. Yeah. The other problem with Ambien or sleeping pills, taking sleeping pills regularly, is it increases your risk of getting dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, You know, whereas this is a safe, gentle sleep aid. So we were thrilled with those clinical results. So we're actually looking at developing other formats for uh, topical melatonin, maybe a spray form or another Mm -hmm. form that's easy to use on the go. Oh my gosh. I'm going to buy this as soon as we hang up. That sounds um, amazing. (laughs) My husband loves it. He he has it with him at all times. So if he's traveling in particular where your sleep gets off, he uses Mm -hmm. it before he goes to bed. Yeah. I mean, we do have a sleep crisis in this country and I know it has a lot to do with phones there's a lot more around it and how we just, you know, 
do not prepare ourselves for bed. And so implementing some of these routines and just even something like this, where it's going to force you to slow down and check out and do something different as you're preparing for bed too, is just so critical. People ask me my top self-care tip and I always say sleep. And what I love for sleep is what I call my power down hour. You have to prepare for sleep just like you prepare for a big meeting or presentation. And I like to give myself an hour to wind down. Using a sutra product can be part of that, but even just, you know, dimming the lights, watching a TV show that you find relaxing or joyful, reading a book, you know, taking a nice warm shower, focusing on your breath. I mean, there's so many things you can do to just start relaxing. So you signal to yourself, okay, it's time to wind down and go to sleep. I have to do that. I cannot just like turn it on, turn it off. Just doesn't work. Yeah. Nobody can. Nobody can. I mean, it's very rare. So the last thing we love to do with all of our guests is we have (laughs) this rapid fire question segment. Um, Sometimes they're the same. Sometimes they're different. I have a few of them for you. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. How you unwind after work? Uh, (laughs) This doesn't sound like unwinding, but I've started studying Italian. And I just love it. It like brings me deep joy. So I'll do like a little Duolingo or or flashcards and study Italian uh, and then start making dinner because I love to cook. Oh my gosh. That sounds fantastic. Favorite step in your self-care routine? Sleep. (laughs) My power down hour for sleep, for sure. The best book that you read most recently? Uh, um, This isn't a new book, but the best book I read recently, which is also timely, is called A Paragon. Mm. which is like a multi-sided shape or something, a paragon, A-P-E-I-R-O-G-O-N by Colin McCann. It's based on real life people and it's actually about Israel and Palestine, but it follows two fathers, one Israeli, one Palestinian who each lost daughters or children, I think, to in the conflict. And it... um, I think it really does a great job of showing both sides uh, by telling these families' stories and these fathers' stories. Okay. On the list. Coffee or tea? Both. That's fine. You can say both. Yeah. And a little green tea at lunchtime. What's your favorite place to go eat in Chicago? I love this little Vietnamese restaurant on the north side called Sochi. They have the best pho. Is it off of Broadway? Where is it? Uh, it's called Sochi Saigon Kitchen. Oh. And they use super fresh ingredients, which is what I love. So- Sochi yeah. Saigonese Kitchen is the technical okay. name. And it's on Belmont and Southport. This is great. I love these recommendations. <laughs> okay. You can take anyone dead or alive to eat there with you. Who would you take? I've been really into... Uh, rereading Maya Angelou lately. So I would pick her at the moment. Yeah. She has an amazing quote about uh, like not belonging anywhere and belonging everywhere. Oh. And what that means. Yeah. I don't know. I think better understanding. Yeah. What Mm -hmm. led her to write something like that and what that meant to Mm her. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite thing on your desk? Candle. I always have a candle on my desk. Favorite app on your phone? (laughs) Um, at the moment, Duolingo, because I'm studying Italian. Yes, absolutely. Uh, favorite travel destination? Oh, there's so many. Uh, at the moment, I would say Jackson, Wyoming. 
I love the mountains and the wildlife. Yeah. Like all times of year. I mean, it really is. There's like something for every season there, which people don't always Mm -hmm. appreciate if you didn't know. Beautiful in the summer and fun in the winter. Yes. Um, I've been there both times. Like them equally. The advice that you would give your 18-year-old self, Stephanie graduating from Juliet West (laughs) High School, what would you tell her? Stop trying to be perfect. Yeah. 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 And remember, which we talked about a lot, your productivity is not your worth. It truly is enough to be in this world. And uh, as long as you're trying to be your best human self, that is enough. Yep. That is a perfect note to end on. No wiser words. Thank you, Stephanie, for being here. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for building your business in Chicago. You know, I know that you have uh, lots of places that you're tied to. You're talking to us from New York. You could build this anywhere, but you are building it in Chicago. And I thank you for that too. And I uh, know I'll see you around. Thank you so much for having me, Margaret. This was so fun. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.